Well, if Harvey used to tell a story, he did tell a story. He said, imagine that you're a doctor, and your first patient of the day is an expectant mother named Katerina. Katerina is unmarried, obviously in her teens, obviously poor. You ask her her age, and she tells you, and at once you realize that she has overstated her age by one or two years. Katrina is in the first trimester of her pregnancy. You ask her if she's been pregnant before. She shakes her head. Steadying her, you wonder. You inquire of her general health. She says, no problems. And the health of the father? Katrina shrugs. Her eyes fall. She has lost contact with the father of her unborn child. All she knows is that he who is 23, a lawyer or a notary, or something like that, he lives nearby, she thinks, but she's not exactly sure. The affair was over quickly and little more than a one-night stand. No child was expected, nor now is wanted. What, doctor, is your advice? Later that same day, you're consulted by another expectant mother. Her name is Clara. She's 28 years old. She's been married for three years. The wife of a, of a bureaucrat, she has the look of a woman accustomed to anguish. Concerned for the ultimate health of her unborn, Clara explains that for each year of her marriage, she's had a child. The first died after 31 months. The second child died within 16 months. And the third child died within several days. So what, doctor, is your advice? In addition to all immediate considerations, physical, moral, religious, the dilemma of whether to terminate the pregnancy is a philosophical question. Might this life, if left to live, affect the consciousness or even the destiny of mankind? Yet if the profundity of this question is diminished by the balance which governs all life, there is evidence in the two true stories you have just heard. The unwed mother and the unwanted child, the married mother with the graves of three infants behind her. For if you, as a hypothetical physician, have opted in both cases... For abortion, then you respectively deny the world of the multifaceted genius of Leonardo da Vinci and spared the humanity of the terror of Adolf Hitler. And as Paul Harvey would say, now you know the rest of the story. Abortion is a question that is in the air. Recent decisions by the governor of Virginia and by legislation in New York State to allow women to even give birth and then decide whether their child is waiting, whether or not to terminate that life. It's an important question. It's a question that comes up from time to time. It's a, it's a question that is very polar, polarizing in our culture and our society today. Most people know where they stand on abortion. About 50 are on one side, about 50% on the other. As our young people may sometimes ask, what is the right thing to do? Is this merely a political and judicial question for, for discussion? Or is it a deeper human spiritual issue? And I think as Christians, we need to understand what we should do as, as Christians on this issue. I want us this morning to think about what should an individual Christian think of abortion. 
I want us to think about how should a Christian treat a girl or a woman who has had an abortion or is considering having one. So let's start by thinking about what an individual Christian should think of abortion. I'm going to start a little bit differently than we sometimes do and outline kind of a background here before we start looking at some texts of Scripture. But just a quick review of the social issue and the debate that exists within our culture. The language of the debate is often pro-choice or anti-choice, pro-life or pro-abortion. Oftentimes, it's framed in the media as anti-choice. That kind of tells you where our society and our culture is at. For many, the choice is important. It's a, and privacy is important, as some say. Some in society merely hold the choice and, and, pri and, and privacy at a high level, saying this is a choice that a person has to make. They ought to have the privacy to make that decision and that choice. Some in the radical feminist movement see the issue as self-autonomy uh, from centuries of patriarchal rule uh, in which men use reproduction as a means of controlling women. One of the classics, if you will, in the eco-feminist movement is a book that was written in 1987 called The Great Cosmic Mother. In it, the two authors, Saju and Moore, they're Scandinavian, made this comment. They said, the biblical God and the fundamentalist men who wave his holy book under the noses of pro-abortion women are not involved in a religion of life, but in a religion of male control. Fundamental to this religion and this control is the male's exclusive right to make life and death decisions. Abortion represents a woman's right to make such decisions. I read this because that sounds odd to most of us uh, and, and not something that we would advocate. But it does make a statement about where many people are today, even if they don't consider themselves to be uh, radical feminists. The idea that uh, the reason people want to limit abortion must be somehow tied to the fact that, well, men want to control things. Men want to be able to control uh, women. I've known people in the uh, debate, pro-life debate, for decades. And I've got to tell you, most of them happen to be women, to be quite honest. And they're not concerned about male control at all. Their concern is about the life of the child. But there are many that that's the way they see it. When they talk about this being a, a woman's right, they, they really see it as uh, an issue of patriarchy over the ages trying to control women. Obviously, not all women and not, not even all feminists hold such a harsh view of God and men. But for many, the idea of reproductive choice is solely the right of a woman and a fundamental right for all women. They really do, many of them really do see this as an issue of, I have a right to control my reproductive choices. And so this value drives much of the debate in our country. It frames much of the language in our country. And to some, this is morality. For many, however, abortion is taking the human life. It's killing without justification, which we would call murder. For some, any killing is murder, regardless of the cause of the pregnancy, whether it's rape, incest, whether it's life of the mother. Uh, it should be illegal in the eyes of many. Others suggest it is immoral for any cause excepting the issue of a mother's life. When Roe v. Wade was decided in 1973, uh, 
It was doing more than just striking down state abortion laws. It was a seven to two decision, and it was based on the concept of privacy and autonomy, according to Yurovsky in his book, Marching Toward Liberty. Yurovsky argues that even among those who agreed that women should be able to secure safe and legal abortions, commentators believe that the court overreached itself. Even in the day, there are many that believe that the court overreached in its decision. And they should have waited for states to legislate. And so you hear this mantra today among conservative circles that it's a state issue. States should decide. Uh, so some of the key aspects of, of the Roe v. Wade decision was that abortion was now safe in 1973. It could be done safely uh, in a medical setting. Laws were needed to protect women. And states' interest in protecting prenatal life were discussed. Justice Black, Black, uh, Blackman argued uh, that the right of privacy, whether it be founded in the 14th Amendment or the 9th Amendment, uh, a reservation of rights to the people, is broad enough to encompass a woman's decision whether or not to terminate her pregnancy. So in other words, you have a right to privacy in our Constitution. Uh, and that comes from the phrase, you shall be secure in your person, your paper, and your effects. Uh, and, and Justice Blackman said, well, that extends to your privacy to make a medical decision. No one should be involved in that. So they extended that idea of privacy there. Uh, however, they also decided uh, that prenatal life doesn't really matter. Because that same 14th Amendment talks about the right to life. Everyone has a right to life. And the court decided that, in the words of the decision, that, a, that the use of the word person is such that it has application only postnatally. So just like the Dred Scott decision decided that Dred Scott was not a legal person, they also decided in this case that a child in womb is not a person because the science of the day could not prove that they were actually a functioning person. But what should the Christian think regarding abortion? I suggest that it should transcend legal and legislative debate. We should remember that we live in a world full of sin. And regardless of what is defined as legal or illegal, we should observe what Scripture teaches. In other words, just as we were talking about in our class in 1 Corinthians this morning, just because the world says something is legal doesn't make it moral. Doesn't make it something that is pleasing to God. And so that's for a Christian where this discussion needs to take a shift. Regardless of whether our laws ever change or not. What is legal? And by the way, if the Supreme Court today decided that Roe v. Wade was wrong and it ought to be a state issue, I dare say at least half the states in the country would still make it, and nothing would really change. Nothing would really change in most states. Some may argue that no passage teaches do not commit abortion. And you know that's true. You do an index search in your concordance, you're not going to find anything that talks about abortion. But is this the limit of our understanding of Scripture? That it has to be a very precise phrase such as that. Consider some Scriptures with me, if you will, please. Let's turn to Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Notice what Paul says to the church at Rome. He says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable 
and perfect. Paul says to these Christians at Rome, he says, look, now that you become a Christian, you need to be transformed. Not conformed to this world, not doing what the world says is okay or moral or whatever, but transformed with the renewing of your mind. And the outcome of that renewing of the mind is that you're able to put things to a test and prove and say this is pleasing to God. In other words, you're able to look at things and say, this isn't something that pleases God. That's what the outcome of the renewing of our mind ought to be. Not just, is this something that the Old Testament lets me get away with? Is this something the New Testament gets, allows me to get away with? And, and those kind of discussions. But you know who God is. And you know his attributes. And as an individual, you're able to say, knowing who God is and what God wants of his people, I can say, this thing here is not pleasing to him. And that's not just with abortion, but that's on any topic. I ought to be able to know who God is and know what's pleasing to him. As we turn over to 2 Peter, in 2 Peter chapter 1, uh, we have this great passage where Paul, Peter talks about how we grow as Christians. And, and he starts off in, in First Peter, or excuse me, in Second Peter chapter one and verse five, and he says, "Now for this very reason, also applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence." And then he kind of builds this stair step of things that we ought to add to our faith: moral excellence, knowledge, self-control, perseverance. And then he says, after perseverance, uh, uh, godliness, godliness. Some translators might translate it piety or to be pious, which has negative connotations in today's culture. But it literally means looking to God. Or in other words, looking to see what pleases God. Because at the beginning, I'm just trying to do what's right. I'm just trying to avoid sin. That's in my infancy as a Christian. But as I grow as a Christian, my mind changes so that not only am I just trying to avoid the bad stuff, but I want to find out, hey, what pleases God? So you have consistency between what Paul says and what Peter says. As a Christian, I ought to be doing. And then Paul tells us one other place in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. That the scripture is there to teach us, not necessarily a dictate of thou shouts and you ought to do this and you ought to do that, but that lessons are provided for us. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, speaking of Israel, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11, Paul says, Now these things happen to them as an example, and they are written for our instruction upon the ends of the ages. So in other words, we look back at the stories of the Old Testament, not because we are obligated to follow the old law, but we can learn lessons from the things that they did and how God interacted with his people Israel. And how much more precious is his church than even Israel was. And so we look to them to see who God is and how we ought to follow as his children. Very clearly, we can know from Scripture that God places a huge value on life. In Romans chapter 1, as Paul is talking about how men turned away from God, one of the things he talks about is their selfishness 
and how their selfishness led them even to murder. He says, Romans chapter 1, uh, beginning in verse 21, For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculation, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. A little bit later on in verse 28, he says, They did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, and gave them over, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips. Did you notice that? He says some of them even went to this level of murder. Revelation chapter 21 and verse 7. As John is, is depicting the visions that he's seen, and he talks about those who are outside the city, those who are not allowed to come into the city of God, he begins by saying, the murderers, those who take life. God has a high value on human life. As we turn to the Old Testament, we see that there is an indication that God sees the life even of the unborn. In Exodus chapter 21 and verse 22, as God is instructing Moses, what shall happen if, if men struggle and they fight and, and there's an injury? Notice what he says in Exodus chapter 21 and verse 22. Exodus chapter 21 and verse 22. If men struggle with each other and strike a woman with a child so that she gives birth prematurely, yet there is no injury, he shall surely be fined as the woman's husband may demand of him. He shall pay as the judge decides. But if there is further injury, then you shall appoint as a penalty life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. In other words, if a man strikes a woman, even by accident, as she's pregnant, if she gives birth to that child, okay. There can be a fine, there can be a penalty. But if there is a death that results of that, the man is to pay life, death for death, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. That was the standard. But perhaps the greatest passage that is most well known as we, as we think about the discussion of, of life issues is perhaps Psalm 139, verse 13, following. Psalm 139, verse 13, following. Notice what David says as he prays to God here. For you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame, notice this, verse 15. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. What does the psalmist say? He says, when no one 
else could see me because I was in my mother's womb, you saw my frame. You were building me. You were creating me. And he says, God, you had my days planned out before any of them ever existed. In other words, God looks at that child in the womb and he says, this child will have these days. It's God's prerogative. It's God's prerogative. God sees that child in the womb through all of its life. Even in the womb. God sees it as his creation. God sees the child as a life that he has given. That's how God sees that child. I suggest that as a Christian, we must think very carefully about how God views an unborn child. It's his creation. It's his child. He's fashioning that child. According to many in the pro-life movement, the conceived child will become a living child. I think it's pretty obvious. I'm not a doctor or a scientist. But the claim is, is that by the, eighth, by the fifth week, the heart beats in that child. By the seventh week, that child has his or her own blood type. By the tenth week, the child begins breathing, if you will, amniotic fluid. By the thirteenth week, third trimester, the fully developed brain feels pain at that age. Is that not a life? Is that not a child? If abortion is ending a life God created, is that murder? Does God have to spell out for us not to take that life? But there are alternatives to abortion. If a woman does find herself in a situation where she cannot care for a child, where she cannot provide for that child, and of course the alternative is adoption. There are different types of adoptions. There's closed adoption where you go through an agency. The adopting parents never meet the, the biological parent. There's semi-open abortions, I mean adoptions rather, uh, where uh, the birth mother has limited knowledge of the family. There are open adoptions where the information is freely shared between birth mother and, and the adopting parents. There's a number of Brotherhood Adoption Agencies. Even in Texas, there are children's homes of Abilene, the Adoption Works of Dallas. Uh, pretty much every state has similar facilities. In that very small percentage of cases in which a woman's life is truly in jeopardy so that only aborting a child will save her life, I'm sure that would be a very difficult decision. If medical technology exists to spare her life, and yet the decision is made not to use that, who's liable for that? I get it. It's a difficult decision. Well, how should the church or a Christian treat a girl or a woman who has had an abortion or considering one? In our society, who tends to carry the burden of a girl's teenage pregnancy? The boy or the girl? Almost always it's the girl, right? Often the young man is left unnoticed, but for nine months that young lady has something that shares to the world or shows to the world 
have some judgment. I sinned. And while it is ending a life, it is sometimes an unseen life compared to a walking, talking individual. And so it's very easy for that choice, that temptation to make that choice to be there. It seems like a viable option. I'm not really ready. Physically, I'm still a child myself. I'm not ready financially. But God tells Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 19, you shall not distort justice. We need to make the right decisions. We cannot condone sin, sexual immorality, or murder. If a girl repents and is repentant and is pregnant, she still has that reminder with her until she gives birth to that child. And then for the life of that child. It's easy to treat her with contempt. And so we better be careful. Under the pressure of shame and hiding sin, many have chosen to get an abortion because it's easier than letting the world know that she is pregnant. If she seeks forgiveness in prayers, we need to forgive her. Christ tells us that in Luke chapter 17, verse 3. Yet because abortion is such an emotionally charged issue, it is difficult to imagine an environment in which a woman who confesses to having one will make that known. Some claim deep emotional scars exist in women who have had abortions. I've heard that claim many times. I have no way of knowing if it's true or not. Others suggest the scars are caused by the guilt placed on those who have chosen to have abortions by others. If a woman confides and seeks prayers for any sin, we need to be supportive and forgive them and love them. For a girl or a woman who's considering abortion, we have an obligation to restore them spiritually. Galatians chapter 6.1 tells us, if anyone is caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one. Yet gently. Yet gently. And so we have that obligation. And I would say in a loving and gentle manner, we need to discuss with them the scriptures regarding life. We need to discuss with them the alternatives. Keeping a child or placing it for adoption. It's important for us to remember that adoption is not giving up a child. It's giving them the right of life. It's making a choice to place that child in a setting where they can grow and thrive. Adoption is a selfless act which a mother makes by recognizing any inability she may have to raise a child and allowing someone else to do so. We will do well to remember what Paul has said about adoption in Romans chapter 8 and verse 15 and the fact that all of us are adopted children, adopted by God. Romans chapter 8 and verse 15 he simply says, For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear and death, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. How do we respond? Just as to any other sin, we try to lovingly correct, lovingly call home. Perhaps if this environment exists, a young woman will seriously consider adoption rather than an abortion. Our story has, does not have to end in a back alley or in a clinic. It can end in a happy home. God is the author of life. He is the creator. And he made men and women in his image. Life is not ours to end. We should not view abortion as a choice nor a form of control. 
it is a decision of life or death. But as in any sin, it is God who can forgive. And it's up to us also to forgive those who ask for forgiveness. I pray that this is never an issue in our congregation, in the history of our church. But it is an issue that we face as the debate wages, rages within our community, within our legislative bodies. And as Christians, we ought to carry this attitude of love and of life. If you're here this morning and you have prayers that you need the church to be aware of, or to ask the church to pray for, if you have other needs, whatever those needs are, once you come, it's together we stand the same.